You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, or you can come and join us at one of our live events. Brigadier Sarah Sharkey commissioned into the British Army in 1991 and has served in a broad spectrum of command, communications and training roles in the UK, overseas and on operations in Bosnia and Iraq. She commanded 10 Signal Regiment with a diversified capability set. She was responsible for the Army's software house from 2013 to 2017. She's now Head Application Services and DevOps at Defence Digital within UK Strategic Command. Additionally, Brigadier Sarah Sharkey is also the Army Advocate for Women in Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics, or STEM. Brigadier, welcome to the Wavell Room. Can you tell me about your role, what it involves, and what the main joys and frustrations are that come with it? Yes, uh, thank you. So I think one of the obvious frustrations is nobody really understands my job title. So having a job title that says application services and DevOps um, is either uh, incomprehensible to many or not very clear to others. Uh, Effectively, what I have responsibility for is our cloud hosting and cloud infrastructure and other platform services that allow uh, users and uh, customers across defence to access hosting services, application development services, and that DevOps capability that allows us to build our own software and our own services. So I'm responsible for a number of projects and programmes within that portfolio. I clearly don't have the whole of defence in that because there are other teams that exist. But within my portfolio, about £120 million um, portfolio of projects includes uh, the ubiquitous cloud service called ModCloud and the delivery of that uh, with the intent that cloud becomes a consumable in defence in the same way that electricity and water is. But I'm also responsible for some uh, C4 ISR applications, medical applications, identity directories, and a a little bunch of other stuff as well. During OpRescript, the military's assistance to the UK's effort to tackle COVID-19 in the UK, can you tell me about what you and your team have been doing? I'm particularly interested in the accelerated development cell. What is it? How does it work? What challenges have you had with it? And what is the effect? So within Defence Digital, we have an operational headquarters who is constantly pivoted, if you like, to that sort of fast reaction supporting operations and exercises across the globe. As Rescript kicked off and the COVID response, there was two challenges to Defence Digital. One was to pivot to remote working. Um, We have a workforce that very much accesses their their non-net from the desktop uh, in the office, and we needed to pivot to allowing people to be able to work from home, which meant significantly scaling out laptops. And uh, so lots of more catalogue type items coming along, and that was well covered off within the Opt headquarters. But because this was an operation being run artificial sensitive within the home base, there was a, a huge demand for other types of applications and software services, everything from uh, medical applications to uh, manage bedding down facilities through to application support initiatives with with SPO in, in, in running the operation, you know, SJCC with something called the MACA tracker, for example, you know, applications and services that don't didn't traditionally have a, an obvious delivery agent. So we set up a, a small team called the Accelerated Delivery Cell to provide a very clear focal point for that demand to come into and to be delivered from. Um, it started off with three of us and ended up with a sort of virtual multi-team of over 40 
critically, I then left my main job for a while because I quickly realised I couldn't uh, manage both jobs and homeschooling at the same time and was able to sort of focus and double down using Agile and Kanban actually on Teams uh, to sort of really quickly push through requirements into, into new services. Not unlike many UOR cells have done in the past, uh, where we've had operations that have needed new capabilities being delivered at pace. Uh, the, the slight nuance here was that we were working very closely with the existing delivery teams to bring forward roadmaps uh, to accelerate capability that was already there, but also to make sure we were landing those services and capability into future roadmaps uh, where we saw there was uh, ongoing utility, not just for sort of the COVID new normal, but also uh, more generically. A good example was a requirement for a secure mobile chat, so think secure WhatsApp, and uh, we were able to bring forward the innovation, some work the innovation team has been doing uh, to very quickly provide, you know, over sort of a few thousand accounts of a capability onto phones that allowed the commandos, for example, to, to conduct the business they needed to do in support of COVID. Uh, and we've now nested that into an option um, with PGHQ very keen to take that forward. So we were trying to do a much more of an end-to-end landing capability as we went forward. Um, I was very lucky uh, in the fact that my current team, T, I've got a really good team with some very strong deputies in there. And so my walking away for three months um, meant uh, that that team could continue to pivot because it needed to pivot in its own way to remote working, you know, being a, an agile team. We were used to having you know hundreds of people in one room doing a massive planning increment event uh, and we had to move that all online but the team were you know that, that great team which is one of the biggest joys of my current role actually is that is the team that i work for or work yeah i do work for them because uh, i consider myself a servant leader and so i feel like i work for them to help them deliver their outputs and, and, and them being such a great team enabled me to step away um, but sometimes wonder what you're for, don't you as a leader, when you can step away successfully. <laughs> but I think that's just symptomatic of you know, being able to set them in the right intent and get them moving. So the ADC over the three months delivered uh, 13 new services, I think, to a sort of tune of about four and a half million pounds. The critical thing was two things that underwrote the success of that. One was purpose, unifying purpose can't be underrated. Uh, in any any walk of life, it's clearly you know quite strong in our military tradition that unifying purpose. But also, if you look at people such as likes of Dan Pink, who talk about how motivating how mo- how you motivate people, purpose is absolutely fundamental. So that unifying purpose around a common goal was key. <laughs> the other thing that was really key was money. So it was given a delegation directly from DRES, which allowed us to have the flexibility to fund those projects without potentially some of the normal processes being in place. And is the is the accelerated development cell still up and working? Or no. So we, as as the work ramped down, we ramped the team down, and we got to the point where we had we were able to pass off a lot of the themes into the existing delivery teams. So uh, one area in particular we reinforced. So one of the team actually ended up creating a new role uh, in the organisation around around collaboration and communications, and she picked up a number of those themes as an enduring thread. So rather than we didn't so much as uh, you know, just just turn it all off and uh, walk away. What we did was we, we embedded those things back. And as we're now moving into sort of the, the second wave, if you like, and worrying about what might happen over the winter, you know, we're, we're oven ready. I think is the term. And we don't expect to have to set the ADC up again. But what we have done is put in place the the, the, the contacts within the delivery teams who know they're on the hook for this sort of activity. 
But if it needed to be set up, you know, the team site's still there. A number of the people that were in the team are still around. And so we could we could pick it up at pace. But I don't expect to have the same kind of demand this time as we had last time, because it's more of the same, I guess. And was the accelerated development cell, was that template already in place? Should there be a response of this type required or did the situation demand that you come up with this concept? So that the wider op force under AVM Moore, the, the, the COVID response team, that construct had already been planned. It was obviously added COVID to it, but that, that ability for the ops team to pivot to war fighting mode, if you like, was already already planned. The ADC was an additional construct we were set up. And it's very much because that software layer, Defence Digital or ISS as we were, have a primary focus traditionally on, on the network layer um, and there's the UAS, desktops, the corporate type IT, and not so much on app dev because a lot of application development happens out in the TLBs. So Defence Business Services, for example, are responsible for HR, commercial and uh, finance applications. The Army has a large set of applications itself, so a lot of that app dev layer. So we didn't have a, a corporate app dev team, if you like, for the enterprise. And so when demand was coming from the centre, so for example, COVID reporting apps, there wasn't a, a clear team that would lead on that. So it basically was setting up to meet an orthogonal demand that needed a, a quick response. What are the lessons learnt through Opscript for you and your organisation? And what do you think should become business as usual? We've been really thorough, actually, around lessons and capturing them and working them through. So the lessons are ones I think we've learned before um, or are kind of really known knowns. So it's, it's all about people uh, at the end of the day. So with the ADC in particular, I was very lucky in that we asked for volunteers. And so we had a, a really positive workforce come into that team who, who had volunteered to be in that team. Um, but also we, those who volunteered had great knowledge of the organisation um, and, and how it worked. So, you know, we had military officers who were able to work really closely with uh, SJCC in order to really understand the requirement. Often they had personal relationships with individuals in there. We had, you know, real SMEs from within the cider um, world. So from the, you know, how we make sure we can re safely release these capabilities into live service who were, you know, very, very committed and, and on the front foot with us. So it was about people having the right skills, the right experience and the right, right sort of um, motivation. Uh, that was really key. And I think I've talked about, you know, the, the lessons of unity of purpose and, and actually being able to follow the money. And in terms of learning them, we are currently in a in a reset, in a transformation within Defence Digital, and we're able to use some of those lessons to, to look at how we look at our organisational design over the next, you know, next few months, bringing through those lessons. So, for example, I was contacted just yesterday to ask how our lessons about how we um, crowd industry uh, let me just go back and explain that. So industry were fantastic during COVID. Um, we had lots and lots of offers of support and help um, and capabilities that they thought might help us uh, move to either remote working or, or meet some of the demand signals. It was a little bit overwhelming because there were, I think, 80 or 90 offers all coming in within a couple of weeks to all sorts of different parts of the organisation. So what we did was set up a funnel so they could come to a single mailbox and be triaged and dealt with. So they always got a response. We were able to turn some off, put some in the waiting room and action others uh, and communicate throughout. So uh, I was I contacted just yesterday to ask under the Ewittier strategy, 
which is the you know the wider defense digital strategy about enabling warfare in the information age is what lessons did we learn and could be pulled through from how we how we dealt with industry in that much more sort of uh, single pane of glass way if you like in terms of being able to match that supply and that demand and those offers innovation is a buzzword in defense it feels like it takes strategic shock to see noticeable innovation. Do you agree? Why do you think that is? Or if you don't agree, why does it just seem like that? Uh, I've always had an issue with innovation as a concept. And I've always had an issue with a lot of the stuff that happens in DSDL, not 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 more broadly, but certainly in, in this IT software space. Uh, and that's for two reasons. One, I find in defence, innovation is, is, is absolutely critical, by the way. We have to do innovation. But unless you have got the escalator or the runway for that innovation to drop out onto and be brought through into live, there's a thing called the valley of death or the trench of doom, I've heard it called, where great innovation just can't get taken forward because there's not a business sponsor or there's not a funding. Uh, and we often, I think, uh, decide to use innovation as a way to try and get stuff done. And then we can we put an awful lot of resources and effort into that innovation and, and then we can't pull it through. And there's, you know, there's there's lots of examples of really great innovation, great ideas, great capability that could have been game changing, but has not been able to be pulled through. It's interesting when you look at some of some global companies, particularly those that are you know, very much in this IT software space, for example, the Googles and the Amazon Web Services world. They don't have separate innovation teams. They, they see innovation as being everybody's business and they enable their own teams to have um, space and time to innovate and to fail fast and all those good things. So you know, certainly within my current team, uh, as we are running a, uh, a set of sprint activities, we include an innovation sprint, which so if, if individuals come across something they want to go and have a look at or they think might add value, they know they have time in a three month cycle to put a bit of effort into that innovation and to see whether it might be something we can pull through. The other side of that coin is in technology and particularly in information technology, the, the Moore's law is just getting tighter and tighter and tighter in terms of how quickly technology changes. And so if we are looking at a, you know, a timeline where we're going to go from innovation through an approvals process into live service, you know, by then normally, the innovation, the um, technology has changed again, or something better on the marketplace, or something different on the marketplace. And so, trying to keep up with that, with a sort of research program that happens for a couple of years, or separate innovation teams, for me, just ends up being a bit fractured. And so, what we have to do is start to see these innovations through to live as a continuum, and we need to start treating software less like buying a tank or buying a plane and allowing uh, value streams to be pulling in innovation, pulling in great ideas, just pulling in off the shelf technology that can add a, add a difference now. And so it's gonna need a, a culture change and a process change in how we how we deliver IT in the future. And there's a huge amount of work going on on this at the moment, both with acquisition transformation program, but also within Defence Digital as to how we actually deliver our outcomes on the transformation program. That is really, really interesting to see how you're really dealing with innovation within your role. Turning now to leadership, you've commanded at many levels, including unit level, and now lead a team largely made up of civilians and co contractors. What's your approach to leadership? You talked about, I think, servant leadership. What have you learned from others before you? What has impressed you and what have you sought to emulate and what have you rejected? I've been doing a bit of thinking about this recently because I'm lucky enough to be on the Defence Strategic Leadership Programme. 
and I actually gave a, a little talk recently about leadership labels throughout our careers we've all been exposed to different leadership labels so you know, when you arrive at Sandhurst you get a little red book called serve to lead and that's also all about your selfless commitment to serve uh, and our reason debtor as officers to lead so that's you know some leadership from the outset and then as you go through your career you come across transformational leaders and transactional leaders and all these different labels and you, you have you know you go through various bits of education which talks about leadership styles you have psychometric tests that tell you you're a four-letter word in a good way probably uh, which tries to label your leadership style and and starts to make you think about how you do leadership differently or you also clearly have you know people you work for uh, who you recognise great leadership in and people you work for who you recognise some leadership traits that you perhaps learn from equally because you um, don't aspire to, to lead that way. And I think most of us actually probably are different leaders in different circumstances. So it depends on it depends very much on the circumstances to what the leadership style and often who you're dealing with. And when you're in uniform, dealing with people in uniform, you're perhaps more homogeneous and you know you can use one leadership style more often than not in a civilian workplace you know there's much more diversity in that workforce and um, my team at the moment I'm you know quite uniquely lucky in defence as I've got some uh, my average age is, is probably hovering under 30 for a, for a civil servant team which is quite young we actually have apprentices in our team uh, which is you know really refreshing so what motivates them is quite different to what motivates um, some of my small senior team if for example uh, they're all horrified at the thought of getting a three-star commendation because that would mean they have to put a suit on they'd have to go and buy a suit <laughs> <laughs> and you know they wear they wear flip-flops and shorts to work so uh, it's interesting to see how they, they different motivate. So, but in sort of you know, recent years, you know, the, the method, the philosophy around servant leadership is becoming um, more and more prevalent, particularly in um, it's coming out the software world and that the DevOps world. And it's really about as a leader, your job is to provide to create to create great teams that are empowered to deliver their own outcomes rather than being codependent on lots of you know milestones or, or wider programmatics because that way you can work at pace and that team takes responsibility for their outcomes and in order to empower that you become a servant leader which is you are they will come to you if they have issues and then you can work through the issues for them and but also you provide you know the strategy and intent it doesn't mean that you don't lead in the traditional sense still uh, it still doesn't mean you don't set the culture because culture is so important and we and we all know that comes a lot of the time from top down but it's very much around you're there to make your teams effective and I always remark that this brings me straight back to Sandhurst and that whole concept of mission command where with mission command you give your your subordinates at whatever grade or whatever level whether that's a squadron commander and team or it's a it's a section uh, fire team and you give them the resources they need and you give them the intent and you let them deliver within that wider plan and so servant leadership and you know, that mission command and so therefore maybe serve to lead maybe are just the same thing and I think what I've learned is actually labels don't matter and there has to be some authenticity there and you have just to be oh, I hesitate to use the word mindful so because it feels a bit overused at the moment but you have to be aware I think of how your leadership style is impacting on individuals in individual circumstances. You've been long listed in the 2020 most influential women in UK tech. You're an advocate for women in STEM, an area that traditionally struggles to attract women. Is it important to you to be a role model for women in the military and STEM? Um, and if so, why? I think if you ask that question of most female officers, I think the initial reaction is, 
I don't want to be put on a as a role model. I don't want to be put on a pedestal in any way because we want to be considered as equals. And uh, I think that's a very common reaction. Uh, there's a real fear of positive discrimination. But I do think uh, it is actually fundamentally important. And it's not, I think the role model is probably the word that's the issue. I think it's more about being able to see the sort of person and sort of role you could do in the future. So what you can aspire to, because somebody else is already doing it. And I think that's where, you know, that part of the role model is that um, it's important to be visible so that, you know, women coming through the army, and in my case, women just in STEM more generally in industry, can see senior females doing successfully, being successful both in the military and in and in engineering um, type roles. And it's about that visibility so that it doesn't become... Uh, it doesn't even cross uh, girls' minds that they can't do things. It's not even it's not even an issue. And I always love I always relate to the story where children were told that they were going to have a visit from a a doctor, an astronaut, and a firefighter, and up they were asked to draw pictures before uh, these sort of you know, august people came to visit them in their classroom, and they all drew pictures of men in those roles. And obviously, what walked to the door were three women in those roles. And I think it's about getting to the point where half the kids are drawing women and half the kids are drawing men because it's just normal. It's just what's expected. And that aspiration that you can be what you want to be and you can do what you, you know, what you aspire to be is no longer a blocker. So, yeah, I think it's it's critically important. I think that the, the terminology role model is is wrong and I think it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. I've got two, two girls who are, you know, uh, eight and about to be 10, as I am told on a daily basis. And you know, I'm really quite hard over on you know, being really adamant that they can do whatever they want to do and they can be whatever they want to be. And you know, if I find if I get anybody telling them otherwise or suggesting them that they should be more like a girl or, or that's the boys, then I get a bit fierce because I think they should have that open openness and that opportunity. Brigadier, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. It's been really interesting hearing about your professional experience in leading innovation uh, through the pandemic, hearing your perspective on leadership and um, how you advocate for women in STEM as well. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.